Ready. <clears throat> Cheers. Cheers. To Richard Dawkins. To Richard Dawkins. Thank you for this book. So we're going to start this off like a commercial. And if you're anything like us, you've probably wondered, hey, what's a good definition for life? Hmm. How about this, Jay? Life is a self-propagating chemical system capable of undergoing adaptive evolution. <laughs> Sounds good. <So laughs> that doesn't make any sense. We're <laughs> going to dig into it. Yeah. This book is The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, written in the 70s somewhere. One of the oldest books that we've done. Still one of the top-selling science books and top just all-around explainer nonfictions of all time. We love this book. It's very fundamental to the way life works. I think that might be the key word here. Very fundamental. fundamental because yes. it starts 4 billion years ago and talks about what the hell we're talking about when we say evolution by natural selection. What's going on there? So if you thought that sapiens started at the beginning, listen to this. Our common yeah. ancestor with our bacteria that's growing on our eyelash, roughly 4 billion or 4,000 million years ago, okay? And we said that our less common ancestor with the chimpanzee and bonobos was 6 million years ago. So that was 0.1% of life's history on the planet is the entire homonym story over the last 6 million years. 0.1%. You got 99.9 left unexplained, and this book tackles it, okay? Yeah. And what's more? <laughs> Here's a bold claim we're both going to stand by. You can't even begin to think about the meaning of life without you understanding can't. this book. We In Sapiens, we covered 0.1% of life. Now we got to cover 99.9% of life, and that's where life starts, mm -hmm. right? You have to know, understand that 99.9 .9 to understand what life is. What is it even life? Yeah. What is it? Why yeah. does it exist? And why are we experiencing right now as hairless bipedal apes listening to our mouth sounds? <laughs> what is natural selection? Why does evolution even happen? Why did we join up trillions of cells into huge fucking robots like whales and sequoias? If we're made of these trillions of cells, why do we start every generation over as a single cell? Why aren't we just growing copies of each other off, you know? Yeah. Why can't I just sprout new yeah, arms, Why do legs, we need to have heads? sex to do that, right? Yeah. Why, what is even sex? And why can we only have sex and make kids with 50% of the population? And why is the split 50-50? What is even male and female? Whoa. Yeah. Why do I not just drop everything to help random strangers dying somewhere? Humans are dying all the time. Why aren't we helping them? But... We would drop everything to save two brothers or eight cousins. We're going to get to those numbers. Those numbers yeah. are important. Coming up so, later. Philosophers and thinkers of the past have believed that our nature or our way of being kind of emerged from our cultures and our society. They kind of thought we were blank slates and that the societies we're born into created us. But there's been a big change. And yep. we're going to cover a lot of those books. That's a theme on this podcast is that our culture and our society emerged from our nature everything that you see today was, all the culture that we that have was a big from idea from our boy eo wilson who we got another dope quote from him right here hit him quote genes hold culture on a leash end quote great quote because eo what's that showing is we're more behaviorally flexible than squirrels okay we can do a lot more things than they can do but we're all basically doing the same things. We're going to fall in love with someone. We're going to have a few kids. We're going to raise them until they can have their own kids. And when you think about it, that's what our genes want. That's what they we want. We want yeah. it because they want it. Yeah, okay, the genes this book want to be reproduced. Yeah. everything <laughs> that you can think about life because it tells the think story. About all your deep desires, yes. Yeah, from the genes perspective. Right. With the next quote. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The next quote here. 
The full implications of Darwin's revolution have yet to be widely realized. Whoa. Yeah, that's basically at the very beginning of the book of Self-Esteem, that's what Dawkins says. And what he says in more words than this, but what he says here is basically, and I'm going to implicate them for you bitches, okay? <laughs> okay? He's like, yeah, Darwin was so smart, you don't even know how smart he was, but I'm going to show you how smart he was. That's so what he's saying. This book kind of tackles selfish and altruistic behaviors because it's got to explain all the ways that animals help each other by the selfish gene theory. Right, and, and just real quick on that. So people are, are kind of affronted by the selfish gene, right? And so they say, well, selfish, that's a bad, yeah. you know, you don't want to be selfish, but... Mm -hmm. Doesn't Darwin's mean, arguing that our genes are selfish and everything we do that we think is nice is really just a way for our genes to reproduce for the next generation. So everything. we're getting there. Oh, yeah. So he says that most of the biologists that came before him made the, quote, erroneous, erroneous assumption that the important thing in evolution is the good of the species or the group rather than the good of the individual or the gene. So he inverts the way every biologist, and maybe this isn't a big deal to you, but in the 70s, it must have been a really big deal, that the unit of natural selection is the gene, <laughs> yeah. not the species or the individual, okay? Ruthless, selfish, DNA replicator genes. Quote from Dawkins, I shall argue that a predominant quality to be expected in a successful gene is ruthless selfishness. One more quote from Dawkins. Universal love and the welfare of the species as a whole are concepts that simply do not make evolutionary sense. This whole book inverts the way you think about all life because we're going to dive into the gene and teach you what is really going on in life. So let the Darwin implicating commence. Chapter one, why are people? We love how Richard opens up this book. Okay, he starts off real hot, okay? If aliens ever visit Earth and want to find out how smart we are, Dawkins says the first question they will ask is, have these crazy people on planet Earth even discovered evolution yet? That is the question. That's the, que that's the that's first question they're going to ask, right? Living, living things have existed on Earth without ever knowing why for 4,000 million years until... Charles fucking Darwin. That's right. Quote, it was Darwin who first put together a coherent and tenable account of why we exist. So suffice it to say here that Doc is pro-Darwin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's so enough. Yeah, think yeah. how long <laughs> a million years is. We've had 4,000 million years until any one organism understood why it existed. And here's why. <laughs> A property of some chemicals is to replicate themselves, and the ones who better replicate themselves spread. That's why we're here. That's it. Biology is a special self-organizing type of chemistry. Whoa. That's it. Okay? So we're going to get a little more concrete. If we know, our if we know we're descendants of replicators, what does that tell, tell us about us? Every single one of our ancestors successfully played the evolutionary game. Every human, every squirrel, every beetle has great-great-grandparents 20,000 generations back <laughs> that boned and brought up kids, okay? <laughs> Think about right that. They're all, we all have a 20,000th great-grandparent that boned and brought up kids. Every living organism yeah and knowing this tells you a lot about their genes and we're gonna hit you with the, the dan garland voice on this one 
those genes are ruthlessly selfish. Yeah. And we're going to dig into what that means. But first, what the hell is a gene? We got to back up and make sure that we all know what a gene so, means. So DNA is a string of four different amino acids, A, G, C, and T. And a gene is like a string of a couple hundred to a couple thousand of those letters in a row. Basically, a gene is a chunk of DNA. Okay? That's what we're saying. <laughs> so I know JD's going to mad at me because he thinks I'm not scientific enough, but chunk of DNA, right? Well, we could just call it selfish chunks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so big point to hit home here is that this, what Richard claims is the fundamental unit of selection is a chunk of DNA. Right? He even quotes it here. Quote, I shall argue that the fundamental unit of selection and therefore of self-interest is not the species nor the group or even strictly the individual. It is the gene, the unit of heredity. End quote. Life is trying to get the best chunks of DNA into the next generation. All it cares about is chunks of DNA. Yep. And we just said that because our chunks of DNA have made it probably a few hundred trillions of generations down the line, that tells you that those DNA chunks are ruthlessly selfish in getting themselves into the next generation, right? But it doesn't mean that each selfish gene can't cooperate with its group to get itself into the next generation. It helps. Think about it. We've got kajillions of genes all spread out in our genome cooperating to Mm -hmm. make us. So we're saying that they're ruthlessly selfish but that they also can cooperate which doesn't that kind of sound like the animal world and here's an example leopards love to care for their children they lick them they clean them they take (laughs) care of them and they take care of them by ripping apart other warthog children okay (laughs) so animals can be ruthless and self and uh, altruistic Mm -hmm. some birds help put themselves in more danger to help their neighbors and some birds eat their neighbor's children okay (laughs) this is weird it goes both ways and we're going to explain it all because all this glorious behavior can be explained by dawkins selfish gene selfish gene so here what darwin's basically saying is here dawkins excuse me what dawkins was basically saying was darwin was right you people out there don't even realize what this means. Genes run the effing show. Now Dawkins, he's going to walk us through the story of evolution from the very beginning of planet Earth when the Earth was nothing but primeval soup with DNA replicators all the way to human cultures. And we're going to examine it from the perspective of the gene, a chunk of DNA. So again, here we go. Let the Darwin implicating commence. Chapter 2. The replicators. Now, this is probably my favorite chapter of the whole book. This is just my blowing stuff. Mm. In the beginning. What he says is that Darwin's survival of the fittest theory could actually apply to more than just living things if you call it survival of the stable. This is going to be a little side note, but it's really deep, and I, I love when Dawkins gets deep. So everything that is permanent enough to deserve a name is stable. We got rocks, planets, oceans, clouds, and people because they hold atoms in a configuration for long enough for us to name them. Mm. Think about this. If you pack quintillions of hydrogen (laughs) atoms super, super tight, they're going to be more stable if they turned into helium. So fusion occurs, and that's what we call stars. The the helium version, when it's packed tight, is a more stable, and physics wants that to happen. Here, here's another little deeper side note. A red blood cell is a protein chain of 574 amino acids, and they're all going to—it's a, it's a long chain, and they all twist around each other in a tight bundle like a thorn bush because 
each one of those 574 proteins along the chain, they either like water or don't like water to a certain amount, and they curl inside the protein chain or curl outside the protein chain based on how much they like water. That's how proteins fold. But they're all exactly the same because that's the stable configuration of these stable. 574 amino acids. Here's the key, and here's why we're bringing it back yeah, to Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't need a designer to make that. That's a good metaphor for how life started. Stability. It didn't need to be designed. It, these chemicals can exist if they're more stable. Survival of the stable. Yeah. That's really what Darwin was talking about. And those examples are some stable atom so configurations that we just talked about. Four billion years ago, scientists think the ocean was kind of a brown soup, which Dawkins calls the primordial soup. Soup of the day, if you were, uh, you know, fun. Yeah, a few billion years of soup of the day. So in the 50s, we got a few Russian scientists, the uh, Miller-Urey experiment, super famous. They tried to create the beginnings of life in a lab. So you get a bunch of test tubes, you put some water, carbon dioxide, a little ammonia, a little methane, put a little lightning, some UV light. What happens after a few weeks? You get some brown, ugly, disgusting soup. But that soup contains more complex molecules, lots of organic chemistry than what you originally put in. Why do they exist? Because they're stable. That's crazy, by the way. That's basically the primordial soup recipe, is these scientists so, saying, creating the conditions at the beginning of the earth, and then and more showing. complex molecules show up in their petri yeah. dishes. Yeah, after a few weeks. So actually, now a lot of research is showing that yeah. life started in deep sea vents, what, you know, without oxygen or sunlight, which is pretty crazy, but doesn't matter. Somewhere, a particularly remarkable yeah. molecule, as Dawkins refers to it, it was created <laughs> by accident. Yeah. And this molecule had a very unique property. It could copy itself over and over and over again. So wait a second. Hold on. We're saying this special molecule, which eventually begat all of life, was created by accident Yes, there's no reason a replicating molecule was created. But as Dawkins says, quote, if you bought thousands of lottery tickets a week, give it a few hundred millions of years, and you're bound to win a few jackpots. So, and actually, it didn't even take life that long because just a breezy hundred million <laughs> years after Earth cooled enough to have stable chemistry, that weirdo molecule was created somewhere. And we're going to call that molecule a replicator, something that endlessly replicates itself. It must have been made up of other amino acids floating in the water, and it probably replicated itself by sucking up more aminos onto it until they broke off and started sucking up more aminos themselves, right? Sort of like an amino acid magnet that starts to copy itself. That's the beginning of life, people. That's what we're talking about right now, right? And if you wait around a while, the ocean's going to fill with those things that replicate themselves. And here's the key. Every mistake it makes in replicating itself, it has a chance of actually making it better at replicating. So whatever one is better at replicating will become more abundant. That's just how it works. And think about this. After a few million years, these replicators are so common in that primordial soup, they're bumping into each other all the time. And maybe after a bunch of successful replication mistakes, a special type of replicator got tired of slooping up little proteins wafting around and decided to take them from other replicators. Take them. Yes. Ruthlessly selfish. <laughs> so if there's a lot of replicators around, that thing's going to replicate like mm -hmm, crazy. Mm -hmm. And then pretty soon, it would have been dangerous not to have some kind of protection for your pressure 
precious aminos or you're going to be stripped for parts, which is not what you want, okay? So you better get yourself a lipid bilayer to protect those aminos. A lipid bilayer. That's the key right there. So the replicators that survived were the ones that built protein shells to live in, otherwise known as cells okay that's where cells cells protect the replicating molecules inside of them that's crazy this is now becoming an evolutionary arms race as your replicators protein shell got bigger and better other replicators got better and better at cracking it open and sucking out your juicy amino acids that was a brief that was a brief books brothers tour of our ancestors lives and the problems they faced our ancestors <laughs> in this like in case sapiens. being replicating molecules in the primordial soup right fast forward a few billion years and this leads us into one of jd's uh, one oh, of our favorite paragraphs yeah. jd loves this Especially so I'm let him me. read it i will one never of the forget best paragraphs of all time reading this for the first time mm. quote what weird engines of self-preservation would the millennia bring forth 4,000 million years on, what was to be the fate of the ancient replicators? They did not die out, for they are past past masters of the survival arts. But do not look for them floating loose in the sea. They gave up that cavalier freedom long ago. Now they swarm in huge colonies, safe inside gigantic lumbering robots, sealed off from the outside world, communicating with it by torturous indirect routes, manipulating it by remote control. They are in you. They are in me. They created us, body and mind, and their preservation is the ultimate rationale for our existence. They have come a long way, those replicators. Now they go by the name of genes, and we are their survival machines. Whoa. Okay. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. Mind-blowing. And it's and this is the whole reason I'm doing this podcast. Yeah. So you can just soak in the awe of even existing as a survival machine. Mm. Mm. So mm. good. Yeah. If you're reading the book, you're going to put it down and yeah. close your eyes for a second, yeah. right? Goosebumps. Chapter three, <laughs> Immortal Coils. A monkey is a survival machine that preserves its genes up in trees. A fish is a survival machine that preserves its genes in water. (laughs) And we're survival machines that do it 400 feet up in a metal tube. Talking about books. DNA can be regarded as a set of instructions for how to make a body. Or in Dawkins' case, he calls them survival machines, which is a way better word for body. Every cell in your body has the same full copy of your DNA. Every cell reads and listens to those DNA instructions from inside its own nucleus to know what to do. Skin cells and hair cells and heart cells and brain cells all are reading their little piece of that DNA but code. it's all the same DNA. Yeah. It would sort of be like each room in a building having the blueprints for the whole building. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. And chromosomes, are your DNAs kind of broken up into 46 volumes. We're going we're gonna to use this metaphor. So each chromosome is a volume because you get... Two copy, or you get a copy of 23 from your mom, copy of 23 from your dad. And when your dad came inside your mom, his sperm <laughs> had millions of little sperm cells in one of them with a unique set of 23, found its way to the egg, mixed up with your mom's 23, and created you. And out of all the millions of dad's sperm cells, one connected, right? And that egg, your mom's 23 and your dad's 23, this is why you exist. This is it, okay? This is where you come from. Our genes are selected for constructing the best survival machines made of protein. But how do you define breast? Best. It's best at bringing up more little precious pumpkin survival machines (laughs) and raising them till offspring age. And this gets a little weirder here because of actually, because of sex, right? What is sex? Quote, 
Sexual reproduction has the effect of mixing and shuffling genes. This means that any one individual body is just a temporary vehicle for a short-lived combination of genes. But the genes themselves are potentially very long-lived. Their paths constantly cross and recross down the generations. Whoa. One gene may be regarded as a unit that survives through a large number of successful successive individual bodies. So that's an important point. A yeah. gene is a portion of chromosome that sticks together long enough through the generations to be considered a unit of selection. That's why we talked about the like the few hundred or a few thousand. Your your chromosomes are constantly mixing and matching, but your genes are what stays constant generation to generation to generation. So let's just quote. review real quickly what we said before we get to this quote. I just want to make sure we're on the same page here, Jay. You have DNA. It's an instructions to make your body. You have genes, which is a chunk of DNA. And you have chromosomes, which are 23 different pieces of DNA that each that you mix from your dad and your mom to make the 23... The 46. 46 pieces of chromosome that are inside of you. Is that all accurate? Yep. So, quote, The gene is the fundamental unit of natural selection and therefore the fundamental unit of self-interest. So this is what Dawkins oh. is referring to. Natural selection does not operate on the level of the group or the individual, but a string of a couple hundred A's, G's, C's, and T's on a chromosome that stick together over the generations. That's what evolution does. That's what evolution cares about. That's why we do everything that we do is because we've got a few selfish chunks of DNA inside of us. That are programmed to reproduce into the next generation. Here's another fire quote for you guys. Quote, a gene does not grow senile. It is no more likely to die when it is a million years old than when it is only a hundred. It leaps from body to body down the generations, manipulating body after body in its own way and for its own ends, abandoning a succession of mortal bodies before they sink into senility and death. So that's why this chapter is called Immortal Coils. We are mortal, and our lifespan is only a few decades, but these DNA coils, they can last millions and millions of years. That's a in, pretty good metaphor. In the preface that he wrote, like 20 years after writing the book, he said if he had roared to retitle the book, he would call it The Immortal Gene. Immortal Gene. And that he would said because be selfish is a downer and immortal is yeah. kind of an upper word. But <laughs> overall, you know, that's that's the two things here is that the idea is that these genes continue on for generation Immortal after generation. DNA chunks. That would be a yeah. good name. Exactly. So <laughs> given go. that every generation of genes is shuffled, that is why the sexually rep reproducing individual is too large and temporary a vehicle to be considered the unit of natural selection. It's like, I, I listened to a TED talk where he said, we're almost like a cloud or a wave, a temporary coming together of material and then dissolving back into the world and, and leaving another thing in, in, uh, in our wake. So... Hopefully, you've left a little drop of yourselves in another person. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Yeah. Chapter four, the gene machine. Um, how does a little chunk of DNA have control over me? How does a gene survive? It's just a little chunk of DNA. It doesn't do anything. It certainly doesn't live or survive. Yeah, well, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do, right? Genes build survival machines to keep themselves intact and what's a survival machine an organization jay of cells that keep each other alive and copying so if you give those survival machines a few billion years 
and you, you get a few different ways of doing business. So plants are survival machines that eat sunlight. Animals are survival machines that eat other survival machines, which when you think about it, it's kind of a bummer for everybody. <laughs> and fungus is an interesting one. I mean, you know, does anybody even know what fungus does? I'll tell you, it secretes enzymes outside the world and digests shit outside and then just like soaks up the enzymes. And here's an interesting side note. I just read the sweet New York Times article that said that fungus probably made the jump to land way before plants did so isn't that kind of cool to think about land covered with uh mushrooms before plants (laughs) so all these organisms are made of lots and lots of cells jillions jillions of cells so it's weird that it's still useful to think of them as one individual how weird is that we've got a fucking trillion and we're one thing but we're like made of a trillion what's that about it's almost like we're a colony of coordinated genes Quote, in the fierce competition for scarce resources, in the relentless struggle to eat other survival machines and to avoid being eaten, there must have been a premium on central coordination rather than anarchy within the communal body. Keyword here is coordination. So what are we talking about here? Just like there's an app for that, there's an organ for that, right? <laughs> exactly. Quote, the main way brains contribute to the success of survival machines is by controlling and coordinating the contractions of muscles we're going to talk about brains right now but first just think about this you got to pump those legs when the lion is chasing you right so you better have muscles you better have a brain that can tell the lion and a brain that can communicate to your leg muscles that run away from the lion right yeah and and control it all so it's all you got running in a smooth motion so when we're talking about these survival machines we need to make sure that we can have a good communication between all the different cells in our body so if we're going to survive out there in the world we're going to need some inputs to our survival machine. So we know what's going on. We and what's going we've on. got five of those inputs, okay? Those are our senses. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's things to improve, but nice survival machine design. <laughs> Looks pretty good, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quote, an yeah. individual is a throwaway survival machine for the self-replicating coded information it contains. Boom. Whoa. In the rest of this chapter, we focus on behavior of animals. Because that behavior is hundreds of thousands of times faster than plants. That's way more fun to talk about. Yeah. (laughs) So our genes don't really control our behavior. They're like programmers that write the software. And the nervous system that we have is what actually runs our behavior. The nervous system is like the hardware running the coded software. That's crazy. Or another metaphor is our brain is like a legislature. And it kind of makes laws where food is good, starvation is bad. And the nervous system is the the executive branch. So it's, it's got to tell all your muscles to approach or run away from things. From the very beginning, that's what the name of the game was. Approach fruit, food, run away from being eaten, right? So actually, the only thing genes do is make proteins. That's, that's it. it. It's up to the proteins to outrun the predators. And that's why our genes made a central nervous system to coordinate all of our movements. So now that Input we're moving, streams, we're going to need a fibers, model yeah. of the world we're moving through, and we have to model ourselves into it. And so he's already stumbling on an explanation for consciousness in chapter three, <laughs> okay? It's so good, we're already dropping conscious bombs. Okay. Introducing brain cells to a capacity for learning is a fire way to improve your survival machine status, okay? Solves the problem of making predictions in unpredictable environments. Quote, survival machines that can simulate the future are a step ahead of survival machines who can only learn on the basis of overt trial and error, unquote. The evolution of the capacity to simulate seems to have culminated in subjective consciousness. 
Perhaps consciousness arises when the brain's simulation of the world becomes so complete that it must include a model of itself. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. The model has got to be so accurate. You model yourself, and that's where self-consciousness comes from. He says that our consciousness may be, quote, the culmination of an evolutionary trend towards the emancipation of survival machines as executive decision takers from their ultimate masters, the genes. Future podcast alert. Stay tuned. We're going to talk more about consciousness with waking up and maybe ego tunnel. Yeah. Okay. Coming up. So here's the point of all this. Quote, by dictating the way survival machines and their nervous systems are built, genes exert ultimate power over our behavior. But the moment-to-moment decisions about what to do next are taken by the nervous system. Genes are the primary policymakers. Brains are the executives. Genes are the master programmers, and they are programming for their lives, right? They better stay right. <laughs> I love right, the way he thinks right? about that. Yeah, okay, exactly. chapter five, aggression. So survival machines adapt to their environments. But here's the problem. Their environment probably includes other survival machines. That, that also want to eat the same things you do, and they want to have sex with the same person that you want to. So that's where aggression comes aggression, in. Aggression, right? But that's the an interesting issue. Question, the interesting question here isn't why animals fight, because that all makes sense. But yeah. they why don't the they fight to the death and then eat each other afterwards, right? <laughs> See, like, that, when you think about it, that makes sense. If I want to have sex with all those females, why don't I just kill the kill other guy the who wants to have then, sex with them? Yeah, exactly. So here's the thing. Think about it. You just killed the rival of all your other rivals. So now you're going to be the line to beat. Chances are you're going to be effed up from the fight that you just had. And every other male line is going to want to kill you too. So you wouldn't be around for very long. (laughs) Animals weigh the survival costs and benefits of fighting all the time. And in their calculations, they include what every other animal of their own species is doing. So here's a deeper point. When you run this survival cost-benefit analysis over millions of generations, you're going to get some stable patterns that emerge. Behavior patterns for choosing mates. Behavior patterns for fighting rivals, like i.e. don't fight to to the death. Females want their baby daddy to be the top guy because he can fight off all the other males. And if males want to be that top guy, because that's what the ladies like. (laughs) When there's no better strategy, everybody has to follow the same strategy or pre-programmed behaviors. And these same strategies are these stable patterns of behavior. There's that stable again. Stable. These stable patterns of behavior are called evolutionarily stable strategies. That's a big term. Pay attention. Basically, what it means is that a behavior does well against itself, meaning there's no better strategy given what everyone else of your species is doing. So here's an example of the evolutionarily evolutionary stable strategy at work. Imagine a population of birds. This is a really good part of the book. Yeah, yeah. We're going we're gonna to skim over it a little bit, but he goes deep into the math. Evolutionary stable strategy. Who would have thought there's so much math in biology? There's actually yeah. a lot. So we're going to have two populations of birds, same species, but they have different patterns of behavior. We've got hawk and we've got dove. Hawks fight until they're seriously injured. Doves are going to flex, but they're not going to fight. So 
again, they're, they're not actually hawks and doves. They're just survival strategy in the of same, the same species. species of bird. Yeah. So if you started off with all doves, uh, you know, it's a, it's a utopia. Everybody's chilling. Nobody's going to get fight. But then you get one asshole hawk in there and he's, f- he's winning every fight because he's the only one willing to fight. His genes are going to spread everywhere. So the hawk strategy is successful against a pool of dove strategies. But then all the baby doves are going to, all the baby birds, they're going to be hawk-like, and hawk like, and you're going to have all hawks. But they're all going to start fighting and hurting each other and killing each other. So the dove strategy is going to come back, and he's going to be fucking all the bitches with, with all the dead hawks are, are, are fighting each other. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot more doves. And eventually, a stable amount of hawks to doves, doves would evolve that balance each other's tendencies. Yep. yep. So that's the key. One strategy... One hawk or dove strategy can't take over. There's a stable ratio of the two strategies so that another strategy can't come in and take over the whole species, right? This goes to show that evolution doesn't give a shit about who's playing. Wouldn't it be nicer if we all doves? Everyone would be happier. Nope, you're going to be invaded by a whole troop of hawks, right? Sucks. Nature finds the evolutionarily stable strategy not because of the individuals, but because another strategy can't win against the that's the key because here once everybody's doing it there's no other strategy that works and it's not this black and white not every bird's going to be a hawk or a dove they're going to be part hawk and part dove but the battle between hawks and doves happens in our genes that's the point over time and if they're able to remember how they did in a fight relative to the average member of their group of their group, you're going to get a dominance hierarchy. And and a lot of biologists actually think that this hierarchy of like where you fit in your fights and everything, that actually turns down the volume on aggression because once you know your spot in the hierarchy, you're not going to need to fight it out every day. It's already day. decided, right? So we know why lions don't eat lions. It's not universal lion rights. <laughs> it's evolutionary game theory. Like the hawk strategy, there's too much risk of retaliation. Lots of species fight but they don't fight to the death. Many animals fight as though there are tournament rules, like boxing or fencing. In this case, animals evolve an evolutionarily stable strategy of attacking other animals, other species. So here's a knowledge drop on you. Evolution is more likely a series of plateaus and new gene design features coming up than waiting for the new evolutionary strategy to take hold. It's not a steady march. So... That was the chapter on how genes affect aggression. But this book is about proving that genes are selfish. And so we need to talk about all the seemingly unselfish stuff we do every day. So here we go. Chapter six, genesmanship. The last chapter, we are treating organisms as a whole in itself because each other individuals got totally different genes. But what about this handsome guy across from me? Because on a genetic level, he's 50% me. Why I think I'm calling him handsome. <laughs> Doc talk here. Yeah. So there's a look at how our genes for aggression evolved. But now I'm going to show your asses how all that nice shit you think is really just your genes evolving selfish strategies to cover themselves. Right? What right. about taking care of our children? Nope. Is that, is that selfish or selfless? Nope. What about loaning brother money? Nope. Nope. <laughs> okay. All these behaviors that we think are altruistic are our selfish genes acting in disguise. Your family members have the same genes as you, you do. There you go. So if you're yeah. helping a family, you're selfishly helping other copies of your genes because 
being siblings, we've got 50% of the same DNA. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we know it's exactly 50% because our parents' sex cells each contain, each contain 50% of their genes. So if I have a certain gene, there's 50% chance that JD's got it too. So the degree of genetic relatedness between the two of us is the same between siblings and also our parents. It's all right? one half, which one means half. that's why we said in the beginning, I would drop everything to save two brothers because that equals a one whole copy of my genome. But there's a way to calculate relatedness, formula, blah, blah, blah. We don't care about. We'll just hit you with the numbers. Parents and children are the same, one half. Siblings are half. Half siblings are a quarter. Uncles, aunts, nieces, and nephews are a quarter. Cousins are only an eighth. And grandparents to grandkids are also an eighth. So, <laughs> yeah, this is Do- a good Dawkins one. says that it might be useful in writing your will, knowing how many <laughs> how many gene relatedness, right? Yeah. But here's the famous quote we mentioned at the very beginning. One one. This is what one guy said that uh, just makes us laugh. Yeah. Quote: I would gladly lay down my life for two brothers or eight cousins. <laughs> but he said that because the amount of copies of my genes and my two brothers or my eight cousins it adds Equals up to one. the total copy of the gene that the, the DNA Every that's inside of me. Every cousin is one eighth, exactly. so eight, eight cousins adds up. Okay. So. so Dawkins says that you should expect that individual organisms act like life insurance underwriters. Actually, should I invest my limited assets to help this individual? Depends what genes she's got. <laughs> How many of my genes are chilling on him? What is my genetic ROI here? That's right. That's a, they're not asking consciously, obviously, but our genes have worked this out over time. This is obviously ridiculous, but you don't have to, like JD said, consciously calculate it. The same way when we catch a pop fly, we're not solving a differential equation about how where to put the ball. Nature has programmed us to solve these problems unconsciously. Oh, the behavior of kindness is just kinship selection channeled to your neighbors, likely to be somewhat related to you anyways. And think about least, history. Yeah. For the most part, your tribes were built up of people related to you. Roughly. So it made sense genetically for you to keep the people so around the you the reason alive. your acts of kindness are really acts of selfishness is because we're really just helping out the family genome. And we're skipping chapter seven because it's not blind, mind-blowing enough. We're only keeping it mind-blowing. Yeah. So on to chapter eight, the battle of the generations, full of more crazy, dark biological truisms. <laughs> like, like mothers having runt children. Think about this. They have a bunch of kids, and then there's a teeny little runt, because if it's a good year, hey, we've got an extra set of genes in the next generation. But if it's a tight year, won't take her that long to starve to death. Whoa. <laughs> That's literally yeah. what animals are doing. But seriously, a mother's optimal strategy is to, quote, invest equally in the largest number of children that she can rear to the age when they can have children of their own. If there's not enough food, she's going to kick that runt out of the nest or not let it suckle. That's how harsh nature is. It's metal. <laughs> but kids can fight back here. Great quote from Dawkins. Quote, using our metaphor of the individual animals as survival machines behaving as if it had the purpose of preserving its genes, we can talk about a conflict between parents and young as a battle of generations. A child will lose no opportunity of cheating. It will pretend to be hungrier than it is, perhaps younger than it is, more in danger. It is too small and weak to bully its parents physically, but it uses every psychological weapon at its disposal. Lying, cheating, deceiving, exploiting, up to the point where the net cost to his siblings is double the benefit of grabbing it himself. 
end quote. Kids are selfish too, and they are going Mm. to try to maximize the amount of resources they can up to the point where it starts hurting two or more siblings because that's the extra copy of the genome. So one scientist actually thinks that baby birds might squeal for food because it alerts hawks. Almost like blackmailing the mother to feed him, or the kid won't shut up. <laughs> Think about hilarious. that. That's crazy. And then I would call like the to... hawks in unless mother feeds me right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah for sure. I'm yeah. gonna call all the hawks. <laughs> and here's the thing that I love is Dawkins doesn't believe in this theory, not because it's too ruthless, but because the baby bird has too much to lose, <laughs> because <laughs> it could kill everybody in the whole family. So <laughs> that's how ruthless you've got to think about nature. You got to take those rose-colored glasses off and realize that your kids are trying to take advantage of you for their own survival whoa and here's a great example of totally effed up but natural behavior okay cuckoo birds this bird doesn't put any effort into raising their own young the mom cuckoo bird just gets pregnant and lays the egg in a different bird species nest and then here's the thing is that that little baby cuckoo it makes sure to get hatched first so think about this you're emerging from the egg. You're taking your first breath of life. That cuckoo is programmed to crawl up to the other nest. It gets under it, and it's got a little uh, <laughs> pocket in its back where it can fit an egg, and it fucking tire flips the eggs, the eggs in the nest. out of the nest. <laughs> this newborn bird commits infanticide within seconds of emerging from the egg. That's crazy, okay? that is. There are some really great mother fetus showdowns in our that happened in our womb but that more recent stuff we're going to cover in the sapolsky's book yeah there's a there's a A lot more more examples of that right yeah there's more uh mother mother son uh, but just just dude issues the the bird genes have programmed this bird to flip the other baby bird eggs out of the nest we've got a lot crazy behavior we're looking at here mothers starving kids mothers murdering other people's kids kids murdering other people's kids kids black pairing their parents (laughs) blackmailing yeah the circle of life right (laughs) that's the circle of life right here so these ruthless behaviors aren't the calculations of evil individuals plotting their takeover of the species they are the calculation of these immortal coils we called genes programming behavior of each respective survival machine across the millennia not programming us for flourishing but programming us for the replication of our own particular brand of genes this is evolution parents and children have spent an eternity battling each other for evolutionary resources because we've got to keep those genes copying so we're gonna we're gonna move on. Yeah, that was a heavy chapter. Up. By the way, kids murdering kids. Yeah. Talking. We're gonna lighten things up. Talking about the immortal battle battle between men and women. What is male and female? Chapter nine. Battle of the sexes. Quote: If there is a conflict of interest between parents and children who share fifty percent of each other's genes, how much more severe must the conflict between mates who are not related to each other? All mates have in common is a fifty percent genetic shareholding. In the children, that's the only reason they cooperate in bringing us up, because their genes are mixed inside of us. Think if one kid was like 100% ones and 100% the other, you wouldn't cooperate. You'd just be helping your own. But because we're both perfect mixes of our parents, that's why it works. So if you want to turn up your genes replication potential to the max, here's your recipe. Sleep around with everyone and make sure each partner takes care of the kids. Right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Maximal gene replication, minimal resource spent. Sounds like what men 
do, but what is maleness exactly? What makes a male? What makes a female? Here's a big idea. Why are there two sexes? How do you differentiate sex across species? Because it's not a penis. Frogs and birds don't have penises, neither do plants. (laughs) What separates male and female sexes is the sex cells or gametes that they create. Males make billions of teeny little swimmer sex cells, and females make colossal food fortress sex cells. So think about how big a bird's egg is. That's one cell. That's That's a good example of a female. So that's it. And Dawkins says from that one fact, all these other principles of biology and behavior fall out. Quote, as we shall see, it is possible to interpret all the other differences between the sexes as stemming from this one basic difference. Whoa. Okay. And he says earlier here that basically what parents are doing is exploiting exploiting each other for the work of raising kids to reproductive age. But we're going to dive a little deeper here and strap in for some hot and heavy gender differences. Since sperm is so cheap, I can have a ton of kids. But eggs are expensive, so women can't have as many. And Dawkins says, female exploitation begins here. Whoa. Bummer. This is speculative, but interesting. Our favorite combo on this uh, Books Brothers podcast here. Maybe way back in the primordial soup days, one sex cell grew a little bigger, since it would be nice to set up your kid with more food. Yeah, Yeah, bigger house, bigger home. I'd like to do that. But that opens the door to free riders who cash in only on producing small sex cells. Darn free riders. Right? And therefore, more of them have more children. So we've got an honest strategy and an exploitive strategy. Those are Richard's terminology. Once this asymmetry occurs... You can't go back to the middle because that strategy doesn't have the positive of either extreme. Think, one sex cell gets bigger, the other one's going to get smaller, and the ones in the middle don't have, you know, the, the benefit of making a ton of them or the benefit of being enormous. So we've got eggs hundreds of times the size of sperm cells, and natural selection spirals off into another weird little eddy. The size difference, quote, places a limit on the number of children a female can have, but the number of children a male can have is unlimited. Even with this divergent evolution, why are the male-to-female ratios still 50-50? Thought experiment here. If you have a daughter, chances are she won't struggle to find mates. Someone's going to want to mate with her. That's the nature of females. Say a gene for having daughters spreads, tipping the ratio towards females. Wouldn't that be good? So they're all having kids. Then a counter gene for having males will spread because there's a surplus of females. So And the pendulum swings back and forth. So that's kind of an evolutionarily stable thing that occurs. In a way, that 50-50 gender split is like... Uh, stable over time that's why it's exists because if you have more of one then it becomes valuable to have more of the other so that's where that 50 50 comes from where female is a safe bet genetically and a male is a high risk high reward bet that's kind of an interesting way to think about it Mm. but since the female makes the bigger initial investment in the egg she's stuck raising the kid that's why the the females have it the moment mom gets pregnant she's more Hot committed is a way you could think about it because she has a lot more invested in that egg size. So males can be genetically programmed to, to be slightly more assholey. <laughs> Sometimes when a male gets new wives, this happens in the animal kingdom, 
He'll kill all the kids because they're not his kids. That sucks. Yeah. This happens if you're a male lion, a male monkey, a male mouse, and many other animal species. And even the occasional fucked up homo sapien. They do that too. Okay. Males have selfish survival behaviors. How do females counter this? Here's what females do about it. Two overarching female strategies. Dawkins calls them domestic bliss and he-man strategies. Domestic bliss is when a female plays coy in order to drive out all the males who don't want to invest the time and energy into a single female. She's going to filter potential mates for qualities of fidelity and domesticity. Mm. So think about birds like, I'm going to make them learn a dance I like or have them build a dope nest for me or provide me with lots of food. (laughs) At least make sure he's going to be able to get the resources that I need to keep these kids alive. So, to quote Cardi B, we should have a date where at the Lamborghini store. <laughs> Females get males to prove their worth in advance with a pre-copulation investment. That's the domestic bliss strategy. But males can lie about their faithfulness and attentiveness as a parent. And genes for men who can deceive women into having children with them and then leaving could theoretically spread. But of course, even shrewder and more discerning women would evolve out as well. Evolution is always running, never getting anywhere. That's the uh, quote from Alice in Wonderland, the Red Queen, and the book, The Red Queen, which we're also going to do on this podcast. It's so good. But this isn't to say that each individual is is one or the other, faithful or philanderous or coy or fast. Everybody's a little bit of both, and that different nature and nurture will bring out different actions from us. Yeah, we're not saying that all men are like this, all women are like this. We're saying these are the generally yeah, evolutionary the behaviors that come into play, and right? And side note, fish is kind of interesting. A lot of time, it's actually the male that takes care of the young, and that left scientists confused. But some think it's because male and females both release their sex cells into the water and women spew them first so, so and they get away and the males are left to take care of them. <laughs> we can't do that because our cells would dry up there in the water so they're permanently wet. We've got to put ours in a wet female, which is weirdly literal. Yeah, but okay. think about it. Whoa. It's going to dry up if it's, if it's left alone. <laughs> this is summed up by the exact quote that I wrote in this book in my blue ink when I was taking notes I, I, with I it. I had to put this in the outline. <laughs> in fish, you see paternal care because females blow their eggs and go. Okay? <laughs> Which That's... is the off-sided blow and go strategy. <laughs> We're gonna, that will come back. So yeah, yeah. back to strategy two for females raising kids in a species with unfaithful males. You're just going to let the male give you some sperm and you do the rest. This one's called the He-Man strategy. With this He-Man evolutionary strategy, you better be extremely choosy and withhold sex until you've damn well picked the best male. Because if you pick a male that other women don't want, your sons are going to be undesirable too. As a mom, you want your son to be tough and hot, so you better pick the best He-Man today. So she's going to check out his record. That's right. Wow, Craig, you've been able to keep a four-foot peacock tail looking fine over these last few years. I like that in a man. <laughs> you don't even have to be particularly love broad shoulders or an eight-inch tail feather, okay? <laughs> if other women like it, you better mate with it because whatever it is that he's got, you want it for your sons, right? The best thing that your son can be in this kind of species is a sexually attractive male to other women because if you have high status sons that's a huge genetic win they can impregnate a lot of females and this leads to a runaway process that gives you bright red cardinals and all those crazy birds of paradise from planet earth great sum up here quote 
Because of the fundamental difference between the size and numbers of sperm and eggs, males are in general likely to be biased towards promiscuity and the lack of paternal care. End quote. But to counter, females mostly follow one of two strategies, which is to either be super choosy and make sure he displays all the traits of a stay-at-home dad, or be super choosy and just fuck the hunkiest guy and raise the kids yourself, okay? So bottom line, (laughs) females are choosy. And given that homo sapiens operate in between these two, it tells us that we settle these questions more with culture than biology. That's an interesting thought. Very interesting. So, so far we've covered aggression among individuals, aggression between the generations, aggression among spouses, basically aggression among everything everywhere. (laughs) But what about all that groupish behavior we do? How does selection of the gene lead to giant flocks of birds, to swarms of insects and schools of fish, to giant herds of mammals and gaggles of geese? How do we explain that? Dawkins, if you're telling me the genes are selfish, you better explain those group type behaviors, right? Chapter 10. You scratch my back, I'll ride on yours. Aren't herds, flocks, gaggles, schools, example of group behaviors to keep the species alive, Jay? Yeah, isn't that what, that's what people would have said way way back then. Survival of the group, come on. Nope. Doc is going to be, he's very anti-group evolution. And one model proposed is that predators go for the nearest prey. So if you're prey, you're going to be huddling into the group. You're not trying to be outside the huddle. So those giant groups form not because they help each other stay alive. It's because that's the best way for each individual Mm -hmm. to stay alive. It's not altruism. It's pure selfishness that brings herds together. The more selfish you are, the closer to the center you are, and the better your chances of survival your genes have. A lot of this chapter is addressing a group selection argument you might not be intimately familiar with, but it helps to think about the arguments and counterarguments. So aren't herds kind of groupish? What about small birds who send out an alarm call when a hawk isn't around? Isn't that bird endangering himself for the good of the group? Evolutionary feature number one, if you analyze the harmonic spectrum of the call, alerting the other birds to say, hey, hawk's around... It has the property of being difficult to locate. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. And he's probably got some kin nearby as well. So it's even more, it's it's still selfish kin, gene behavior. Kin selection. Here's another right. weird example that group selectionists used to point to. When a gazelle would see a lion, it's going to start jumping around in the air, almost like baiting the lion and showing, him, showing the lion that he's there. And scientists were like, why is he doing that? Maybe he's trying to distract the lion from the other weaker members of the group, but no. <laughs> the, the antelope is going to be selfish, and he's going to say, yo, look at me. You can't touch this because <laughs> look how high I'm jumping. So go for one of those old antelopes with Don't no go ups. go for me. Selfish. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The, uh, and since predators are always looking for something easy to catch... That's why he's going to go, don't go for the high jump of gazelles, right? And if you were to say, hey, Richard, but how do you explain those social insects? Bees kamikaze sting. They kill themselves for the good of the, the, the hive. That's not selfish. There's even an ant species. This is crazy. They have a cast of workers that are just big food sacks that hang, hang from the ceiling. So their body is literally a giant soylent vending machine <laughs> with no individual existence. Surely, come Jay, on. that's got to be some group behavior, come right? Come on. Yeah, come on now. But we don't even need Dawkins to tell you. Forget how genes work in social insect groups. Heads up. Every ant bee worker you ever see is female. 
All the sisters are 75% genetically identical. That's how they build these crazy big hives. That's a lot of kin selection. Yeah, you can't even have kids unless you're a queen or a drone, and there aren't too many of those. So this quote here is fire. Quote, the death of a single sterile worker... Excuse me. Quote, the death of a single sterile worker bee is no more serious to its genes than is the shedding of a leaf in autumn to the genes of a tree. That's some bio poetry right yeah. there. Here's a side philosophical note on social insects. Quote, true warfare in, lo- in which large rival armies fight to the death is known only in man and social insects. Mm, sounds kind of like crazy. 90% chimp, 10% bee from uh, Righteous Mind. So what superficially seems like group level adaptations, when you look at them more closely and from Dawkins' view, they turn out to be selfish strategies for keeping genes alive. Lots of cooperative, cooperative things happen when you're a selfish gene, though. Here's one of my favorite examples, lichen. What the hell is lichen? Is that shit that grows on rocks? It's an algae, which is a type of plant, growing inside of a fungus think about this fungus builds the house and then algae lives and works inside of it that's two completely different kingdoms of life cooperating for their mutual survival benefit and here's an interesting question so if we gave them a few more hundred million years would we even be able to tell that they were two separate organisms Even deeper question, is there something right now, a cooperation that has gone on for so long that they've blended into each other and we can't tell them apart? Get this. You know how our little cell powerhouses, you remember from eighth grade biology, mitochondria, they have their own DNA? Yeah. Well, mitochondria do have their own DNA. They replicate themselves on their own. And Dawkins says that if we lost all our mitochondria, we'd be dead in seconds. That's how important they are. Whoa. New research shows that the mitochondria was probably a bacteria that was swallowed up and learned to live inside a different kind of bacteria-like life form, an archaea. Archaea is like a bacteria, but they're genetically different. They're two completely different kingdoms of life. They branched off way back in evolutionary time. And yet, all eukaryotes, plants, animals, fungi, amoeba, and protists and stuff, all of those are combinations of two other kingdoms of life, bacteria and archaea. A billion years ago, an archaea swallowed in a bacteria, and the two have been working together ever since, and that is the only reason we can exist today. And this is why we're going into it, because this is mind-blowing, that Dawkins says that we may be better thought of as, quote, giant colonies of symbiotic genes. Whoa. The same way mammals herds, mammals herd and birds flock, our genes swarm up in jumbo-sized organisms. We're like giant swarms of cooperating A's, G's, C's, and T's. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. So we've been firing through this book, by the way, and we've covered 10 chapters. But we're going to take a quick pause and make sure we review what we've covered, because we've been flying through some really good content here. So um, Dawkins started by saying... Darwin was right. You guys don't even know how right he was. Okay? Replicators called genes are selected for in evolution. We are just their survival and replication machines. We went from primordial soup, where the replicators first started replicating, to cells being built to protect the genes, then keeping cells inside of you, creating giant body swarms of multi-celled complex organisms and into today. 
Then he goes through all sorts of behaviors and explains them by showing their value in improving gene replication chances in the future. All those nice things you think we do really are just selfish gene behaviors, right? We hope that kind of makes you rethink a lot of our human behaviors. Right. But after chapter 10, we've reached some sort of ledge in the book. So he's, he's done all this. He's proved the selfish gene. He offered a hypothesis and backed it up with 10 chapters of evidence showing why our genes are selfish. Now, it's here from this ledge in the book that Dawkins makes a leap in a different direction. So he's made it this far, proving the selfish gene, and he's going to take that premise and leap off into another crazy direction that actually has been, you know, really influential later. Yes. You know how he said Darwin was right? You guys don't even know how right he was? Quote, It's too big a theory to be confined to the narrow context of the gene. After 10 chapters talking about the selfish gene, Doc starts over at the beginning and shows us it's not just DNA that replicates. And natural selection applies to anything that replicates. So more Darwin implicating chapter 11, word you've heard of, memes. The new replicators. We're turning it up to 11. That's right. So Dawkins says Darwin's theory extends beyond genes. Like, what's so special about genes? Genes are replicators. Are there other replicators out there? Quote, We biologists have assimilated the idea of genetic evolution so deeply that we tend to forget that it is the only that it is only one of the many possible kinds of evolution. The speculating on discovering new alien life forms like life based on electric circuits or Whoa. ammonia instead of uh, crystal planet. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. uh, ammonia instead of carbon. He says, "Quote: If I had to bet, I would put my money on one fundamental." principle the law that all life evolves by the differential survival of replicating entities say that again differential survival of replicating that's entities. all life that's what he's betting he suggests mm. that this differential survival of replicating entities is almost like a physical law like f equals ma or e equals mc squared well it's tough to argue with that so if that's the case what about these other type of replicators we have so far we haven't even talked about humans so we're going to talk about them now. All right, then, Doc. Well, for starters, if you're going to talk about humans, you're telling me that my body and mind are just a dumb and pointless survival machine for my genes. That doesn't make me feel very special. I'll be honest. Don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes that in and kicks off chapter 11 by asking himself a good question. Are there any good reasons for supposing our own Homo sapiens species is unique? He says yes. Yes. And what is that? What makes us unique? What's the reason? Culture. Culture. Mm. Quote, cultural transmission is analogous to genetic transmission. The new primordial soup is the soup of human culture. And in our world of culture, we see another type of world with the differential survival of replicating entities. So Doc introduced a new name way back in 1976. Way when he wrote back this in book, 1976. To culture to talk about cultural replicating entities and by the way this name comes back in full force in the internet today and the name he introduced to talk about cultural replicating entities is memes memes which he took from the greek my meme which means to imitate or mimic not from the internet where the meme of memes now lives (laughs) so here's some meme examples Make America great again. That's a meme. Fashion. Like, remember how a few years ago we just started seeing pants with the cinch at the bottom? Like, those were only cool in the 90s, and now they're back. That's a meme. Holding doors open for women. That's a meme. 
Pokemon's a meme. Pokemon's any, a meme. Any idea that generates and perpetuates itself into the culture is a meme, right? Beanie Babies. Yeah. Remember that stupid WhatsApp commercial? <laughs> that was a meme. Marketers are basically meme creators. That's, That's what, market, what they are, marketers right? do. Quote, when you plant a fertile meme in the mind, in my mind, you literally parasitize my brain, turning it into a vehicle for the meme's propagation in the way that a virus may parasitize the genetic mechanism of a host cell. So... That's how shit works. You replicate ge- memes you hear from other people. Have you ever seen the video for Gangnam Style? That's, that's, <laughs> that's kind of how meme. it works. Yeah. So what qualities do these new meme replicators need to have to survive? They, they better replicate a lot, just like genes. As long as you keep replicating, you're probably going to be okay. Some are really short-lived but effective replicators. We've given you a ton of examples, right? Another stupid example of a meme. Exactly. All you idiots know what that song is for no reason. Other memes have lasted longer, a lot longer. Jewish laws have spread to the next generation for thousands of years. Thousands of years. The Catholic Church is the longest continuous human organization in history with a truckload of memes in tow. Here's a working definition for meme. An idea meme might be defined as an entity that is capable of being transmitted from one brain to another. The medium of transmission of memes is human influence of various kinds, the spoken and written word, personal example, and so on. Saying that genes are trying to increase their numbers in future gene pools, what we actually mean is, quote, those genes that behave in such a way as to increase their numbers in future gene pools tend to be the genes whose effects we see in the world. So here's an interesting idea. The same way genes evolved teeth and claws and carnivores and long-ass intestines and, and herbivores, memes evolved certain partnerships that make them more effective in the meme pool. Think about that. The genes evolve teeth and claws and carnivores because that makes them more effective at eating things. Well, here's some meme partnerships that evolved in the meme pool. He asks if maybe organized religions are, quote, co-adapted, stable set of mutually assisting memes. Most religions have a faith meme. It's important. Dog. It's yeah. important to be uh, to believe, believe in the faith. Yeah, that's that's good for replicating of the meme, right? You got to believe it to be able to replicate it. To Dawkins, this faith meme is quote blind trust in the face of evidence meme. <laughs> I think we are all aware of how Dawkins feels about religion. Yeah, and he says that doubting Thomas story is a Christian meme about having faith that. It's told so that we look down on the behavior of demanding evidence. Quote, nothing is more lethal for certain kinds of memes than looking for evidence. And he mentions celibacy, another meme, and the meme complex of Christian memes. A not very good one for replicating the meme, but also a very interesting one. Memes can cancel each other out. Like he says, you certainly didn't inherit a genomic propensity for celibacy. So it's not in the gene pool, but it is in the meme pool. Which is pretty crazy to yes. think about. Memes are transmitted through the medium of human influence. Spoken word, personal example, and now we have TV shows and social media. Mm. And when we die, there are two things we can leave behind us. Our genes and our memes. Socrates didn't have any kids, so he didn't leave a speck of gene in the gene pool. But Socrates is doing laps in the mean pool, baby. Okay, yeah, seriously. Along with the major scientists, artists, and visionaries from all the ages whose memes live on until today. The cultural memes replicate just like genes. Human minds hold cultural memes in their heads. These memes play differential survival too, and analyzing them that way shows what to look for in memes that stay alive. 
So humans are just hosts for genes and memes. <laughs> That's what he's saying. There's not a lot of free will going on. Not a lot of purpose he, either. He ends this chapter on a positive note, though. Quote, but we have the power to turn against our creators. We alone on earth can rebel against the tyranny of the selfish replicators. Hmm. And that brings us to chapter 12. Nice guys finish first. In this chapter, Dawkins applies game theory to evolutionary strategy, showing how certain game theory behaviors can become evolutionary stable strategies. A key feature of the survival game is life plays indefinite games. If you play a standard Prisoner's Dilemma game, for example, it's better to defect, not cooperate, have higher odds of success. But that's only in a game with a finite number of rounds. If you play an indefinite game of Prisoner's Dilemma, it's better to cooperate for the long term. So Dawkins looks at the cooperation behavior of various types of life, like fig trees or bacteria or wasps, and he shows how a stable cooperation strategies could have evolved as a way to better the chance of survival of those selfish genes. So this chapter's got a lot of stuff going on. We're kind of leaving it here, but... Both the scientists that he's quoting in this That's book, right. Go Blue. Robert Axelwad and W.D. Hamilton, University of Michigan, Go Blue. <laughs> 60s and 70s. And so he talks a lot about how, you know, prisoner's dilemma affects evolution. But well, yeah, there's some good game theory and stuff, mm. but it's a lot of math, too much explaining. We're going to skip to chapter 13, the long reach of the gene. Think about genes almost like slinkies. They're coiled up into double helix rolls, bouncing from one expendable survival machine to the next, shuffling themselves up every new bounce and animating every square millimeter of the planet. I wrote that, by the way, not Dawkins. That was, that was <laughs> nice, some good nice shit. One, Jay. Yeah. They temporarily collect in our bodies, but they're really at war with each other, and they all have peacetime strategies with other sections of the slinky. They're going to combine to make us for a short while, but then it's off to another body with with another person's half of the genome. So in a TED Talk, like I said earlier, he talks about us almost like Dawkins. waves. Yeah. Where, you know, every... You know, think about a wave mm. through water. Very the, interesting. The water Whoa. molecules stay where they are, but that wave of energy transfers through them. We're a temporary coming together and then a fading back. Mm -hmm. And we're going to keep smoking from the pipe of life here yeah, because nice we're getting deep here. here. This is actually one of my favorite parts of the book. He asks three crazy questions. So crazy that he said it's actually harder to think of the question than the answer itself. Question one, why did individual replicators swarm together and build homes for themselves called cells? Why? Think about that. Mm. Well, our genes make a living by building things that are protein. Our cells are like big factories where we can produce lots of different kinds of proteins. It's a big complex factory where you can do lots of different operations. You need multiple genes to produce multiple types of proteins to do cool, complex stuff. So you need a big house to put them all in. Yeah. And it's helpful to keep all the good shit inside and the bad shit outside. So that's why all life has a boundary. That's a that's one of the key features of life that actually exobiologists and stuff are talk talk a lot about. Question number 2, here's a, here's an even crazier question is that once we've got cells, little little protein factories, why do they all gang up to form many bodied many celled bodies? Why do we have trillions of cells all cooperating? We got two reasons for this one. One is that it's easier 
for a big cell to eat a little cell. <laughs> Think about that. It's good to be bigger. That's why lions want to eat other animals' children, because they're smaller. And plus, if you are a male lion and you want to have sex with the lioness, you better be the biggest lion or you're going to get stopped because the bigger lion will stop you. So size is really important. And that applies not just to lions, but to cells, two or three, four cells versus one or two cells. Little, uh, and yeah. now that we have thousands and trillions of cells, each single cell can specialize in a certain function. Like we've got muscle, neurons, red blood cells. So they might say, I'll be a red blood cell, and I'll give you guys some oxygen, or I'm a nerve cell, and I'm going to tell you if something happened. Uh, nice cells. Uh, I'm a good swimmer. What should I do? <laughs> I don't know, Andrew. What should I do? <laughs> Think about it. Each cell does completely different things, even looks different. Think Nerve cells are like feet long. Whoa. That's crazy. Yeah. But they're all clones. They all contain exactly the same DNA. Otherwise, they wouldn't cooperate. Selfish gene. Yeah. Here's the third crazy deep question. When we want to grow another human body, why do we go all the way back to the beginning and start with just a single cell and grow a 40 trillion cell body from just that one? Yeah, I looked it up. It's 40 trillion. Why aren't we just ripping our arms off and growing a new body from that? <laughs> Think about a whale. It's got a thousand times more cells than we do. That's an actual quadrillion, which is a real number. I wouldn't have even known. They all do different things but they all come from one cell containing one encyclopedia of blueprints. Why? Three reasons here. Reason number one, we start over with one cell so we can evolve. The best way to change is to go back to the drawing board and build everything from scratch again. And maybe something is a little bit different this time, right? The second reason is it starts with an accurate calendar so you That's can a build a body idea. with teeny replicating cells. you got to have an agreed-upon starting point if you're going to time things properly, and our cells can plan things for years ahead. Think of puberty. It's a perfect example. We planned years it before ahead. we, got, we were born with one cell we knew in puberty. Yeah. You start as one, and every single cell is on the same calendar. That's crazy. And then the only way to get all those genes to cooperate on in the long term over all, for all these shared goals is to give everybody the same shared goal overall because they want to be a fertilized gamete. And after some time has passed, you want to fertilize another gamete with your gametes. Think about this. There are parasites that control an ant's brain and make it climb to a treetop and die so that the fungus can grow out of it and spew its spores everywhere. <laughs> there, there's another, another example. example. Blow and go. That's Blow right. and go strategy. That's the fungus. <laughs> Great evolutionary strategy. The fungus doesn't cooperate with the ant's genes because it doesn't need the ant's genes to get into the next generation. It They just can throw out a cloud, cl cloud of spores where the ant needs to get into the next generation through the queen's eggs. But... Our mitochondria live and replicate and cooperate with us because they get into the next generation the same way we do, through that one egg. That's why they cooperate. So the same way ant colonies work so well, and they all seem like such great employees, because they get into the next generation through the same avenue, that one queen. Not mm. only do all my cells cooperate on, on building cells, but all the cells in my body cooperate on the goal of making me a happy and healthy homo sapien because it all starts over again with one single cell in my testes. <laughs> and it's, since we're going this far out, it's weird to think about that all the DNA code in my body 
if you look at it from far enough away, it's all cooperating so that I can make enough money and have children with a hot and healthy wife. That's, That's really right. the whole point. Hey, explains a lot of human nature, doesn't it, right there? So call these three back to the drawing board. Orderly timing cycle and cellular uniformity. Back to the drawing board. That's why we start over again so we can evolve something new. Orderly timing cycle so they're all in the same calendar. And cellular uniformity so that we all have this. We start from the same place and we all have the same goal because we're getting into the next generation through that one teeny little gamete. Okay. So here's the big sum up on life. We asked these questions at the very beginning. We've got replicators whose replications aren't perfect, and the ones that change in ways to be better at replicating are the only ones still around. At some point, the environment began to actually include other replicators, and in rare occasions, they helped each other and stuck together, creating cells, and a few billion years later, bodies. So our DNA isn't the way I copy myself. I am the way DNA copies itself. That's a deep idea. Yeah. DNA isn't the way we copy ourselves. We are the way DNA copies itself. Whoa. That's crazy. Quote, replicators are no longer peppered freely through the sea. They are packaged in huge colonies, individual bodies. And the phenotypic consequences, instead of being evenly distributed throughout the world, have in many cases congealed into those same bodies. The individual body, so familiar to us on our planet, did not have to exist. The only kind of entity that has to exist in order for life to arise anywhere in the universe is the immortal replicator. So before we read this book, we thought we understood the theory of evolution by natural selection. But this book is one mind blow after another, and we hope we captured that in our 28-page motherfucking outline. That's right. So we enjoy that. We've been cruising, by the way, through this outline, I have to say. yeah. Evolution works from the differential survival of replicating entities called genes, and we are giant gene colonies. We combine our genes into male and female bodies because one of us creates only a few big juicy gametes and one creates tons of little swimming gametes and we're 50-50 split because that's the evolutionary stable strategy. And so we would like to thank Richard for elaborating on Charles's ideas so eloquently and for helping us understand how our world was actually formed. What kind of survival machine am i living in right now why am i doing the things that i do he's made us think differently about our society about men and women about (laughs) our behavior and about the meaning of life and we're actually going to start a new band (laughs) what's the name replicating entities with our first album differential survival (laughs) that's right (laughs) so we hope this book gave you some dopamine hits because it was some deep shit that our doc was spitting here yeah and in closing I'm going to read the quote that gave me goosebumps, and I hope you get goosebumps too. What weird engines of self-preservation would the millennia bring forth? 4,000 million years on, what was to be the fate of the ancient replicators? They did not die out, for they are past masters of the survival arts. But do not look for them floating loose in the sea. They gave up that cavalier freedom long ago. Now they swarm in huge colonies, safe inside gigantic lumbering robots, sealed off from the outside world, communicating with it by torturous, indirect routes, manipulating it by remote control. They are in you and in me. They created us, body and mind, and their preservation is the ultimate rationale for our existence. They have come a long way, those replicators. Now they go by the name of genes, and we are their survival machines. 